Hi, welcome to eMigCast. My name is Eric Hefner and I'm a third year medical student at OHSU. In today's episode, I'm sitting down with Dr. Varma Penamecha, who's a forensic psychiatrist at Oregon State Hospital in Salem, Oregon, which is Oregon State Psychiatric Hospital. In our interview today, we're going to go over acute psychosis, both from the perspective of the emergency medicine physician or student or resident, but also cover a lot of general information regarding the basics of diagnosis and management of acute psychosis, as well as the ethical implications of treatment that would be useful for anyone who's interested in a refresher on psychiatric illness, especially acute psychosis, not just if you're interested in emergency medicine. Obviously, acute psychosis is a pertinent topic in the emergency department that can be challenging to manage and has a lot of gray areas that we don't have an objective test or algorithm that you can follow and rely a lot on the clinician's judgment. I hope that this information will allow you to feel more confident in your approach to patients presenting with acute psychotic illness. Additionally, before we start, we have a brief disclaimer for medical students or residents or anybody else in training prior to listening to the content of the interview. Before I uh, start talking about uh, caring for acutely psychotic patients in an emergency department, I just want to say that for medical students uh, or residents uh, who, are, who are in training, it's important to seek supervision before uh, performing any uh, medical procedure or prescribing any treatment. Uh, and my uh, discussion of this topic should not replace for uh, appropriate and timely supervision. Thanks, and here's our interview with Dr. Penamecha. Hi, I'm Eric Hefner. I'm a third-year medical student at OHSU, and I'm here with Dr. Varma Penamecha. He's a psychiatrist at the State Hospital, Oregon State Hospital in Salem, Oregon. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dr. Penamecha. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. So as a forensic psychiatrist at the State Hospital, can you just describe your day-to-day -day work? What do you do on a, a day-to-day -day basis seeing patients? Sure. Um, my... Um... Day-to-day -day work consists of uh, working um, with acutely psychiatrically ill patients mm -hmm. who were found not fit to proceed, meaning the, the judge or the attorney working with the patient thought that because of mental illness, they can't uh, work through their case and that they need to be treated. Mm -hmm. Those are the patients I work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And... Um, once in a month, I do forensic evaluations okay. uh, to determine someone's uh, ability to uh, aid and assist or to determine someone's uh, criminal responsibility, uh, meaning someone had committed a crime, whether uh, their mental illness uh, prevented them from appreciating their criminality at the time of an incident. Mm -hmm. uh, that's assessing criminal responsibility is that I do once every month. Mm -hmm. And those aren't the patients that you're treating in the hospital, right? Those are those are a separate group of patients that you're not directly involved in their care. That's correct. That's a good point. I'm not supposed to uh, evaluate patients that I've treated to maintain uh, objectivity uh, because as a clinician, you, um, you are out to think about patients in their best interest. Uh, but as a forensic psychiatrist, you're supposed to be more objective mm -hmm. uh, and um, try to ascertain the truth and strive for objectivity uh, as opposed to being a clinician. Therefore, I can't evaluate patients that I've treated. Okay. So the patients that you're taking care of in the hospital, they've been evaluated by somebody else who's said you're not, they're not capable of aiding and assisting in their trial or 
they're guilty except for insanity. And then vice versa, you're also performing that role for other patients who are being treated by other psychiatrists in the That's hospital. That's true, yes. How do you become a forensic psychiatrist for anyone who might be listening who might be interested and thinks that all of that sounds like something they could see themselves doing in the future? What is the training path that you go down? Sure. Um, well, uh, you after uh, training in psychiatry, uh, uh, forensic psychiatry is a one-year uh, fellowship. Uh, and part of the fellowship, you essentially uh, try to um, work with all the patient populations you would uh, your you're expected to encounter as a forensic psychiatrist, including the two patient groups that I discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. And also uh, a component that is not seen in Oregon State Hospital is working with um, patients in correctional system. Uh, as you may know, um, since we closed the, the, the asylum and uh, the state hospitals in 1960s and 70s, uh, there's a significant component of mental health patients who are, who are in jails. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a forensic psychiatrist, you um, you get to learn how to work with patients in a correctional system. As a forensic psychiatrist, what are the most common diagnoses that you see in patients that you take care of in the hospital? So um, the unit that I work in is a male-only uh, competency restoration unit. And most of the times, um, the patients I get are um, with acute uh, psychosis, uh, whether that is uh, substance-induced, or related to a medical condition, uh, less often because of a mm -hmm. medical condition, or uh, a primary mental illness that um, that has relapsed because of non-compliance, um, or just the natural course of the illness that has been exacerbated. Um, we uh, see less often um, uh, patients with depressive disorders, um, uh, but trauma and stress-related disorders are common in the patients that I treat because mm -hmm. most of them uh, tend to be um, indigent and homeless. Um, that is less of a focus of treatment than treating the acute uh, manic and psychotic symptoms that are at the forefront. So most of the patients that you're treating on a day-to-day -day basis have some form of psychotic illness, whether that be schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or substance-induced. That's true, yes. So since we're talking about acute psychosis today, and could you just give a little bit of an overview of kind of what your definition of acute psychosis is, or psychosis in general? How would you how would you recognize a patient who has psychosis, especially if it's a more subtle presentation? Sure. Uh, well, psychosis is a uh, is a serious mental health condition, uh, which essentially means that um, an individual loses touch with reality. Mm -hmm. their sense of reality is altered. Well, when you look at uh, the ways of diagnosing by looking at symptoms and signs, but that's what uh, essentially DSM um, uh, shows as uh, uh, a method of diagnosing patients with psychosis, um, you know, you, you commonly hear about uh, individuals presenting with uh, hallucinations or uh, delusions, uh, or uh, disorganized uh, behavior, or mm -hmm. disorganized thoughts, uh, which are uh, right at the forefront. Like mm -hmm. it's it's hard to not uh, see them as symptoms. Um, like seeing someone uh, responding to themselves, uh, which shows that they may be hearing voices. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, someone talking about them being followed by individuals, 
uh, that there are cameras out there monitoring their every move. That's pretty obvious that it's uh, could be a delusion, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, thought disorganization, where individuals uh, can't form logical thought, that becomes quite evident as soon as you talk with a patient, mm-hmm. right? And the other one uh, is behavioral disorganization, like individuals behave behaving in a really bizarre manner, um, which uh, sometimes is a reason why patients get fraught. These mm-hmm. are some of the symptoms that are at the forefront, but um, when you look at historical factors of an individual who comes to the ER with psychosis, you would hear from family members or patients uh, sometimes when they're insightful that you know they uh, had trouble concentrating, yeah, which okay. is a vague symptom. Uh, they had a decline in work performance or they've been trying to isolate themselves more lately. They've chosen not to have as many social interactions. Uh, these are some of the softer signs um, which patients may present for years before they actually become psychotic. Okay. So uh, while that might not be the reason why they come to the ER, but uh, trying to get a longitudinal course of these symptoms would um, establish uh, good differential for you to know whether this is primary psychosis where there are the softer signs before they become psychotic versus someone who's substance abuse where the beginning of psychotic symptoms is much more abrupt. So it might not necessarily be someone who you can identify right away that they're talking to themselves or talking about those hallucinations. It might be more subtle types of things that the family has noticed that maybe they're not explicitly expressing to, to the outside world. That, that's true. And and some of these patients um, actually get treated for uh, depression. Okay. Uh, imagine somebody not liking uh, social interaction, someone uh, not able to concentrate. Uh, if you look at sim- uh, symptoms for major depressive disorder, these are some of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So these patients come and frequently get treated with antidepressants. Okay. Uh, of yet to develop into full psychosis when you actually see, in retrospect, you can make sense of the symptoms in that light. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are some of the th- some of the signs and symptoms which uh, physicians working with patients with psychosis should be familiar with. Okay, so it's important to dig a little bit deeper into your questioning for maybe those more subtle signs that That's someone true. might have psychosis. Correct. Uh, what are the kinds of things that could cause someone to have psychosis? Obviously, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, what kinds of other maybe medical conditions or medications or drugs can cause someone to have psychosis. Sure. Um, you know, when when you when you have patients come to ER, um, it's 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 quite common, um, you know, to think about um, whether this individual has just a psychotic illness and they've been, not been treating taking their medications, or this individual. Um, took a substance like methamphetamine or cocaine or a stimulating substance which have caused mm-hmm. them to be psychotic. But um, it's, it's helpful to think about more broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if this is an individual who has a trauma in the head um, and there's some bleeding going on, it's quite mm-hmm. obvious. Like this individual is psychotic, maybe the trauma is related to it. Mm-hmm. But you also want to look into other causes of psychosis, Okay, such as uh, delirium. I, Patients with delirium, besides the waxing and waning of the sensorium, they frequently present with psychosis. And um, 
obviously going through the differential of what an individual with delirium might have as a potential cause, you have this whole array of reasons why someone could be delirious, right? Mm -hmm. uh, some of the common ones being someone being hypoxic or okay. hypoglycemic or uh, having some electrolyte abnormalities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you want to think about those. Um, for uh, you, you, you should think about infections. Uh, infections systemic causing a delirious condition or infections of the brain um, mm -hmm. uh, that, that are causing someone to be psychotic. You also want to focus on uh, neurological and neurodegenerative uh, diseases. Mm -hmm. uh, someone with uh, uh, dementia, someone, uh, some forms of dementia sometimes present directly with psychosis before the more cognitive uh, changes present. So you want to be open to that as a possible cause. And some of the hepatic and renal conditions with um, the changes that happen due to this condition in their chronic phase can cause psychosis as well. So besides the obvious common reasons you think about, it's useful uh, to have an open mind to uh, think about other potential causes. So especially if it's somebody's first time presenting with psychosis, make sure to do kind of the full medical workup for someone, do your full physical exam, order labs, look into potentially other more, I guess, insidious causes that could, that could be leading to psychosis. That's, that's correct. Um, for a patient present with an acute uh, psychosis to a psychiatric hospital, uh, for whom there was a well-known history of psychosis, all these tests become in irrelevant because you know there has been an illness and this is probably a relapse. But, but someone presenting to an ED and having first-time psychosis, you want to be as broad as you can to rule out all the other causes because a primary psychosis is uh, essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. Okay. There's no brain imaging. There's no blood mm -hmm. test that I can do to say, oh, this is a schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. right? It's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you want to be more broad when you first see that patient. Um, moving on a little bit kind of to a case study, if you will. If Let's say in the emergency department, this could definitely be a really common presentation that you get a call, an ambulance is coming in, maybe a patient was found by police, they're agitated, quote unquote, um, they'll be here in five minutes. How, how do you go about evaluating that patient where maybe you don't have very much medical history on this patient, you don't know what could be causing the psychosis, it's probably evident that they are psychotic or at least agitated, but what are your kind of first steps right when they're brought into the emergency department? Yeah, uh, so, so um, clinicians tend to be very poor when it comes to predicting violence. Okay. That's a, that's a fact. Um, so even before you uh, see a patient who comes to the ED, um, Ideally, uh, there are certain there should be certain um, safety measures built into an emergency department to take care of patients like this mm -hmm. patients presenting with acute psychosis. So, uh, ideally, there is a dedicated area for patients uh, with psychiatric uh, condition. Um, if, if you don't have a dedicated area, um, it's, it's better to look for a room which doesn't have access to uh, potential weapons or ligatures. Okay. Uh, just because having this 
uh, objects in the room like any medical uh, unit does could, could uh, give more access to um, uh, potential weapons okay uh, if someone's psychotic um, and and ideally they should be applied even before you as a clinician go to uh, see a patient and and uh, I there should be some way to monitor the room when you are evaluating this patient one way of doing that is having a 24-hour surveillance and in, in the rooms that um, you have psychiatric patients mm -hmm. the the hospital that I did uh, my residency in had that kind of a system okay there was a video monitoring system and there was an individual dedicated individual monitoring that videos at all times okay um, also learn uh, what is the alarm system in the ED okay there, there's yeah. always an alarm system either mm -hmm. it's a, some kind of a device that you carry in your pocket or there's a code like you call the phone and say uh, uh, Dr. Robinson in room number nine okay. or something like that. Okay. Uh, there's a code phrase you can tell to alert individuals without uh, making it obvious for the patient. And um, let's say you're not in an ED with all the above features, mm -hmm. uh, which is it shouldn't be an expectation always. Try to make sure you're seeing a patient in a non-isolated area. Don't try to see them in the last room of the ED where uh, no one can see you. Mm -hmm. Try to see them in a place where um, security can have easy access uh, and there's someone who can always have an eye on, on you and the patient. Um, so these are the things you want to uh, make sure before you actually um, see a patient. Mm -hmm. uh, ideally, you would know some information from the family members or um, the ED staff. There is some triage systems built into EDs before uh, uh, in a, a physician or uh, a psychiatrist comes and sees the patient. Uh, it would be useful to get uh, any preliminary information you can get okay. from the ED physician or from the EMS personnel who, have, who may have run certain labs on this, this person before they actually come in. And uh, before you go in and talk to the patient, take a look at them from, from afar and see what their body posture is, uh, how they're doing, if they're sitting comfortably in a chair and uh, eating their sandwich versus someone who has a tense posture, really loud mm -hmm. and thumping on the wall. So just to get an estimate of uh, how alert you need to be when you do your assessment. So these are some of the things you want to sort of be aware of or built in as a habit mm -hmm. when working in the ED. So even before you go and see the patient, there's a whole lot of things that you need to consider. Both, if ideally you'd want them in more of a, a secluded room that maybe some emergency departments that have the actual seclusion room or at the very least in a more open kind of environment and make sure that make sure that there's enough people around you to ensure safety and then also get gathering the information before you go see the patient is that right you'd you'd rather get that information kind of before you go in that's correct um and and most of the times even when there's a patient that's coming from uh from nowhere uh someone 
uh, picking up uh, a patient from the street, you will have some preliminary data mm -hmm. uh, about this patient. And you can prepare the field, if you will, uh, as to uh, what are the conditions under which you will see this patient mm -hmm. so that you ensure your safety, the patient's safety, and make sure um, you can you can get as much uh, reliable data as you can get in a safe environment. And then afterwards, after you've gotten all that information, you know that you're in a safe place, what's the next step that you go to evaluate the patient? Sure. After you've done all the, uh, the about, um, always uh, uh, try to look at uh, lab work if you um, have lab work for a patient, uh, which is already done. And then um, when you've done all of that, uh, uh, I'll talk a bit about you know, how to maintain uh, you, your, your composure mm -hmm. um, and how you interview a patient when you get there. But uh, once you make sure all the safety measures are there, it comes down to um, a good old patient interview, mm -hmm. uh, focusing on the immediate concern when somebody gets uh, bought in. You know, mm -hmm. uh, as as a trainee, I can I can you know it's it was not a long time ago that there's always this push to get as much data as you can from a patient, mm -hmm. right? That could only be I I could imagine that could only be frustrating for a patient to just do this style of interview where you're trying to be comprehensive without looking at the problem that someone is here for, right? If someone is here for uh, acute psychosis because they couldn't see their outpatient psychiatrist uh, in one week and they're off their medications because of that, there's, there's not, not a whole lot, uh, a whole lot to do to know about their past history. Okay. Right? It gets pretty limited to finding out how long they've been taking this medicine and, you know, making sure that they have this medication available. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also thinking about where you're working. Okay. For example, if you uh, work in uh, ER in downtown Portland um, or someplace in Oregon, methamphetamine use tend to, uh, is highly prevalent mm -hmm. around this part. And asking patients about that question is not a bad idea and this might not be true for an ER in in let's say Michigan where I, okay. where I did my residency and but for in Oregon if there is an someone who's coming as acutely psychotic for the first time uh, I would I would ask that question so you would guide your interview essentially focusing on what they're bringing mm -hmm. uh, to uh, branch out a differential and also knowing your population and as to what other common conditions are seen in that place. So kind of assessing the stability of the situation, whether or not they're, they're acutely psychotic, they're, like you said, off their medications, they might be a little bit more stable. Right. Are there things that you've, you can do that can avoid escalating a situation or that you've seen that can cause the situation to become escalated? Because sometimes if a patient comes in and they're agitated, it can be a really tense situation, there might be a lot of people around, people might be kind of jumping to going to the next level of treatment. How can you kind of calm the situation down? Sure, um, and when you think about it, uh, an emergency department is 
is not an ideal place to evaluate uh, psychiatric patients mm -hmm. if it's a traditional uh, emergency department where there's a lot of movement and there are a lot of sounds and there are a lot of people moving in and out of the room at any given point, mm -hmm. which you can is distracting for an medical uh, patient who doesn't have any psychiatric illness and imagine someone going with psychosis in the midst of this. Uh, so it can be very uh, challenging for those patients. So th these are some of the common things you have to think about mm -hmm. when um, working with any psychotic patient. But in an ED, I would, uh, I would think about uh, maintaining uh, some space between uh, the patient and you, uh, at least uh, uh, two arms length of distance. Mm -hmm. uh, between you and the patient so that um, you're not encroaching into their their personal space okay uh, this this personal space is quite variable per, for individuals mm -hmm. uh, sometimes patients let you know that you're getting too close but it's it's ideal to maintain at least two arms length of distance between you and the patient um, and also uh, in terms of your body language uh, Try to keep your uh, body relaxed, uh, not make uh, too many hand gestures and or quick movements, okay. which can be interpreted as a potential threat mm -hmm. uh, by the patient. Um, uh, and also try to use simple, concise language. Try not okay. to use any technical terms or uh, terms that could be hard to understand. Okay. You want to make it as simple as, uh, uh, as possible. Uh, and when you uh, see individuals who are uh, upset, uh, irritable, it's sometimes helpful to identify that out loud. Okay. Telling, you seem to be upset. Okay. Might be one thing that, that they're looking for. Okay. Like having someone actually tell this person what they're going through. Mm -hmm. So just identifying that in a non-confrontational um, yet gentle tone could be helpful um, and also uh, when you're interviewing a patient try to uh, paraphrase what a patient is telling you uh, sometimes they're in a rush to tell you a lot of things uh, but for them to know that you're being attentive try to paraphrase what they're trying to tell you and summarize what they tell you to make sure uh, the patient understands that you are on the same pa page as the patient Right, um, and and it would be helpful not to be uh, sugarcoating things. Okay, you may disagree on certain things and things that a patient might want. Mm -hmm. uh, you you don't want to sugarcoat things for the patient to find out later that you are lying. It's mm -hmm. better to uh, disagree uh, if you disagree mm -hmm. uh, in a non-confrontational tone than to say something where the patient is momentarily satisfied, but then later founds out that you were lying, mm -hmm. that actually creates a much worse situation um, than telling the truth in the first place. Mm -hmm. And um, set clear limits. Sometimes patients are upset, they, uh, they yell profanity, um, uh, they're aggressive. Um, it's, it's, it's helpful to set limits for patients. Mm -hmm. Telling, uh, I understand you're upset, but uh, I, I don't appreciate you calling me that name. Okay. So if I, I, I want to continue this interview, but it would be helpful if you don't uh, yell and call me names. Mm -hmm. You know, being neutral, respectful, and at the same time establishing a boundary. And 
after you've done certain things, evaluated a patient, make your opinion, tell the patient about it. Okay. Uh, don't pass an order to have staff take care of it. Just come mm -hmm. back to the patient and say, this is what I've done. This is what's going on. Just to give a sense of closure to the patient. Okay. So these are some of the uh, things you can follow to not escalate the situation with the patient. Okay. Yeah, that's really good information to know because I think a lot of times um, we sort of get uncomfortable with those kind of things, kind of being explicit to a patient, maybe a little bit of tough love kind of things can be hard for people or maybe even just taking the time to sit down and explain to the patient everything that's going on. But those are all important things when dealing with the patient, especially, I guess, all patients, that's an important thing to do. But um, especially with a patient who has acute psychosis, it can kind of help you manage the encounter. That's true. And it's it's a learning process for anyone. Um, I, I've seen uh, myself learning, mm -hmm. uh, doing these things with patients as I go. And, um, you know, it's, it's always a learning process and you just improve from patient to patient. Mm -hmm. you know? One of the things that I learned in my psychiatry rotation that I don't think it's taught really outside of the psychiatry rotation is determining risk factors and doing risk assessments for suicide and violence. Could you go into a little bit about how, how you do that in general and how you would do that maybe in an acute situation in the emergency department? Sure. Um, um, in an emergency uh, uh, situation, um, especially in an ED, you don't have all the tools, uh, not necessarily the luxury of time to make this uh, comprehensive suicide risk or violence risk assessment. But one thing you want to do is uh, have some uh, standardized method for yourself to uh, evaluating suicide risk or violence risk mm -hmm. so that you do that each and every time you evaluate a patient right? Uh, and not uh, use uh, a sort of a tailored approach that you have which may change in its substance every time and you may end up leaving something that is important. So. Mm -hmm. When it comes to suicide risk assessment, uh, a tool that I've always used in residency and uh, I still find it uh, useful is called uh, SAFE-T. Okay. Uh, it's an acronym, uh, which is Suicide Assessment Five-Step Evaluation and Triage. Okay. It's a five-step procedure and how you look at uh, risk factors. It actually points out what are the risk factors you have to look for. Okay. So that it's easy, it's um, it's right there on the paper, and it also points out the protective factors that you should look for, mm -hmm. and also essentially uh, giving a level of risk, okay, like a low, moderate, and high, mm -hmm. and eventually uh, the the fifth point being documentation. You know, you can do all the suicide risk assessment you want, uh, but for the sake of uh, uh, medical legal purposes, mm -hmm. you haven't done it if you haven't documented it. Mm -hmm. So it also talks about documentation. So I would encourage uh, listeners to look at this tool uh, and consider using it, um, obviously in, in, uh, with some supervision as their, as their training. Mm -hmm. um, when, it's, when it comes to violence risk assessment, there's not a, a, a single tool that, that actually measures uh, violence in any predictable manner. And okay. as, as I was telling earlier, uh, clinicians tend to be very or predictors of uh, imminent violence. Okay. Um, so there has been a, this, a study that I recently looked at which showed uh, uh, people who are in the earlier part of training 
uh, tend to be more at risk of violence than at a later part of training. Interesting. Uh, comparing first five years versus uh, after five years of, mm -hmm. of uh, starting to practice, which kind of shows that you develop your own sense of intuition about mm -hmm. what are the situations to avoid. Um, but uh, clinically, you can be aware of certain factors that would increase the risk, like uh, young male with uh, psychosis, with history of incarceration mm -hmm. and violence while incarcerated, that that definitely shows a high risk of violence. Mm -hmm. There are certain tools you can use. Uh, there is this um, Broset Violence Checklist. Okay. It looks at six variables. Uh, pretty simple. Uh, all the patients who get sent to the state hospital from jails have this done uh, within 24 hours uh, to give a sense to the evaluators who are in the state hospital mm -hmm. their level of risk. So this is something you can look at. Uh, there is classification of violence risk, which is an actuarial tool. Uh, an actuarial, actuarial tool is something where you put in, the, put in the factors in a computer model and it turns out a number. Okay. Showing what okay. is the level of risk of someone who's discharged from the hospital. Um, that may not be useful right when you're working with a patient, mm -hmm. but when you're trying to discharge someone, you can use this. Okay. Uh, and finally, uh, there's a tool called HIT-CR20. Okay. Uh, historical Clinical Risk 20. It's a 20-item uh, uh, checklist of uh, variable factors, including 10 historical and also 10 uh, five clinical and five risk factors, which are, this is, uh, this looks at both historical factors and also active clinical factors so that it can be relevant in your clinical care. Okay. So this is something that individuals can look at uh, to uh, assess risk. And are these all things that are available online if somebody searches for them online or? Yes, they, they are available. Um, uh, uh, these are pat patented, so okay. uh, individuals Either they have they should have an institutional license to use them, or they would have to pay for it. Okay, so maybe through wherever you're training, either your medical school or residency, or if you're an attending, hopefully that you have access to those. Um, yes, or are able to get access to those. Right. And in um, full disclosure, I, I I don't have any financial uh, conflict of interest with the individuals making this. Right. Right. Uh, right. Scales. Yeah. Um, going a little bit more, kind of say our patients agitated going back to our case study um, what are some of the interventions that you can use to to kind of manage the situation i know that there's medications there's seclusion there's restraints and you can see them being used in a whole host of different ways and maybe kind of going into a little bit more detail about when is the actual appropriate time to use certain certain interventions to to deal with an acutely psychotic patient Right. Um, so you have several tools when once you um, made an assessment that in, this individual is acutely psychotic, um, including uh, medication management, um, uh, using uh, just verbal uh, de-escalation techniques without requiring any medications, mm -hmm. and then uh, seclusion and restraint as a last resort. Um, Sometimes when you see a patient in ED, even if they're psychotic, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to treat them. Mm -hmm. uh, individuals can be uh, psychotic. Uh, they could have good insight into their psychosis, and it may be just a family member who's concerned that 
their illness has relapsed. Mm -hmm. And you may need to just reassure the family member, provide the resources uh, using our social work colleagues to uh, appropriately refer them, and then making sure there's not anything acutely medically going on. Without requiring any treatment, you can discharge that patient. Mm -hmm. right? uh, on the other hand, you have the psychotic and um, acutely uh, uh, agitated patient mm -hmm. who uh, either a first-time psychosis or a substance-induced psychosis who uh, uh, does not have insight into their illness, which is more common mm -hmm. for individual with psychosis, where um, depending on their level of dangerousness, meaning um, if an individual is uh, in the ED just uh, yelling at you and uh, just being loud uh, and being disruptive, um, would you say that's dangerous to others or self? Uh, mm -hmm. Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if someone is uh, agitated and instigating other uh, patients to a point where other patients are getting agitated and they're trying to... Uh, you think there's a fight that's going to break up. Mm -hmm. uh, is that dangerous to sell for others? You can you can make an argument uh, mm -hmm. that this could potentially lead to a situation where uh, this individual can put themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. And those patients, depending on their uh, uh, their capacity to consent, which we'll talk later, mm -hmm. you can consider um, oral medications with uh, with their willingness to take it. Uh, or injectable medications. We have uh, some uh, injectable medication options. Uh, either of them could be tried to manage acute psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, on the uh, other hand, you can have an acutely agitated patient uh, because of some um, uh, unforeseen, unforeseen circumstances. If an individual is uh, agitated but not psychotic, you don't have to give them antipsychotics. Okay. For individuals mm -hmm. like that, if in your best judgment you think this is not psychosis, this is just because their uh, emotional state is so heightened and mm -hmm. they're so agitated that they're not able to control themselves, you can consider giving just a benzodiazepine. Okay. Like an Ativan or a Clonopin. That, that is, uh, it's an anti-anxiety agent uh, that can help reduce that agitation. Um, so these are medication options that there are several options available and depending mm -hmm. on where you're working, you may have this various options available. And finally, um, seclusion and restraint. Mm -hmm. We can talk about the ethical implications of using seclusion and restraint later. Mm -hmm. uh, both seclusion and restraint are meant to be a last resort mm -hmm. uh, yeah. measures to um, ensure safety of the, uh, the patient and individuals around them, uh, and th th there is a place for the use of these methods uh, if uh, all the other measures, including verbal de-escalation techniques, um, oral medications, injectable medications, uh, after using all of them and uh, failing to um, treat a patient, this may be considered. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it, this would be the appropriate thing to do. Think about um, an acutely agitated patient uh, because of a medical illness who is um, uh, breaking things and uh, hitting walls with his bare hands and 
had fractured his his hand mm-hmm. um, or some part of the body because of the psychosis. Um, obviously, you, you don't want to put them in seclusion because you're essentially giving them a place to hit, hurt themselves more. Mm-hmm. In that situation, you would think about restraints. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? And there are other scenarios where you can consider seclusion more appropriate than restraints. We can talk about it later. Um, okay. But these are the different modalities that are available after you gather the old information, make sure everyone is safe, and you decided to intervene. Mm-hmm. Trying to use the, the minimal possible intervention for the situation and also the appropriate possible intervention. Just because you can use something doesn't mean it's the right thing to use or even the ethically right thing to do in that situation. That's exactly right. Um, going back to what we were talking about, about um, involuntary treatment and voluntary treatment, how do you determine whether or not a patient can give consent to, to give medications or when it could be appropriate to give somebody medications without their consent? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. Um, a patient uh, telling you uh, that they want to take medication is not consent. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a patient agreeing to take medication. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Uh, it is called assent. Um, but as a physician uh, or any clinician prescribing medications to a patient, you need to assess capacity to consent mm-hmm. for treatment. Um, what, do you, what do you need to assess to uh, say that someone has the capacity to consent for treatment? You would want to know if they have all the factual information Right. Uh, that they're supposed to have about this medication, right? Like mm-hmm. To give an example, if you're uh, planning to prescribe haloperidol, they, you want them to know that it's an antipsychotic medication. It's an uh, it has certain side effects, including uh, dystonias. Uh, if you take it for long term, you might get muscle twitches called tardive dyskinesia, mm-hmm. uh, and you can gain weight, and you can have metabolic problems in the future. Um, these are this is called like the factual data, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's it's just information that they're supposed to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to know um, the risks and benefits of uh, uh, choosing to take this medication versus choosing not to take this medication, mm-hmm. and they should have a way to manipulate this information. Meaning, it it shouldn't be just a unidirectional way of them responding to questions. You should be able to change the variables in an interview and have them uh, uh, adjust their thinking when you're changing the variables Mm -hmm. um, so that you know that uh, they actually understand the information versus uh, knowing this information by rote memory. Right. And um, and, and finally, um, you know, in in your, uh, even you get to this point, you should no, this is the best form of treatment that you're recommending for this patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you decided a person has capacity to consent for treatment based on this assessment, mm-hmm. you can can ask the patient if they're willing to take it. If someone has a capacity to consent for treatment and they're refusing to take it, uh, you'll not be able to treat them. Okay. Even if they're uh, aggressive and uh, agitated. Uh, you shouldn't be able to treat them. But if someone is agitated, aggressive, to a point where you are not able to have those conversations, the risk-benefit analysis of wanting to stop the medication versus wanting to take the medication, you can make a point as to how they lack capacity 
because of their their agitation. Okay. Um, and once you decide if they lack capacity to treatment, uh, to consent for treatment, you can give them involuntary medications, which which means giving medications without their consent. Uh, this could be um, intramuscular or PO uh, medication. One thing to remember as uh, giving involuntary medication is an invasive procedure. Okay. Mm-hmm. In psychiatry, it's it's like doing a surgery. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's something that people think about very often. And and thinking of it that way is is helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you come across a patient and you're making that decision to treat a patient, it's helpful to think that this is an invasive procedure, and you have to uh, assess the capacity of a patient to consent for treatment before making a decision to give the medications voluntarily or involuntarily. So it's not something to take lightly, obviously. And uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point that it can help you if you think about it like it's doing a surgery and it's invasive, then it makes you think a little bit harder about what you're actually doing and um, that's how you're treating the patient. Exactly. Yeah. One question that I was going to ask you about that we talked a lot about when I was working with you at the state hospital is kind of when is the right situation to use certain interventions, be it medications or seclusion or restraints? I remember there was a patient where you asked me, when is the right situation to use restraints? And he was in a seclusion room. And I said, when he's when somebody's a danger to themselves or others. But then you followed that up with, well, if he's in the seclusion room and he's a danger to others, is that the right situation to use restraints? And then thinking about that more, it's no, of course, that's not the right situation to use restraints if you're if you're already in a seclusion room. So kind of just going a little bit more into patients' rights and the ethical implications of using these interventions that really are serious interventions. Um, what the kind of things you should consider before you actually use these? Sure. Um, it's always good to remember to use the least restrictive method, even when it comes to medication treatment or seclusion or restraint. Mm-hmm. Thinking about just medication, um, if a patient has a capacity to consent and you as a physician have assessed that capacity that they have, they in fact have that capacity, and even if they're still psychotic, and if you're, they're not being a danger to themselves or others, mm-hmm. you as a uh, responsible and patient uh, care-centered physician might mm-hmm. feel that you want to treat that patient because they're psychotic. Mm-hmm. And you know um, from from working with these patients that the longer you don't treat them, the harder it becomes to treat them in the future. Mm-hmm. There's always this urge to treat them. But, but when you think about patient rights, you are trying to give a medication that the patient has uh, refused to take. Right. And patient has the capacity to consent for treatment and what you're doing is an invasive procedure Mm -hmm. against uh, patient's rights you're uh, taking away their liberty to choose what what they want to do so it's it's really a um, uh, heroic measure Mm -hmm. if you will Mm -hmm. when you decide to do that Um, working in inpatient psychiatric unit when you have to make these decisions every day you may not think of that for every moment that you're working with a patient. It mm-hmm. kind of go in this cruise mode, mm-hmm. but it's always essential to stop and think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to seclusion and restraints, 
uh, first of all, both seclusion and restraint are the last measures mm-hmm. of right. uh, patient, maintaining patient safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to imagine that they're a form of treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? exactly. What are you trying to treat? Mm-hmm. You're trying to keep this person, uh, this patient, away from other individuals because this, this patient is aggressive. Mm-hmm. In which case, seclusion may be considered, wherein you're choosing to restrict the movement of a patient uh, because they are being extremely disruptive, uh, destroying properties, uh, instigating other patients, uh, being agitated enough that uh, the unit, the milieu in which they are located, mm-hmm. uh, is disrupted because of that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, it's it's better to take some time off mm-hmm. to help them re- rethink uh, where you as the clinician had made that decision to do it and also hopefully you would continue to assess this person on an ongoing basis to think that this measure is necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why if you're working in hospital, um, there's always, um, there are always measures put in place as to how often these patients need to be evaluated. Right. And that's the reason. Like, you're you're not just locking them away. Mm-hmm. You are assessing them every hour mm-hmm. to make sure they continue to need this level of intervention and restriction. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, restraints, um, there, there are a couple of ways uh, to uh, think about them. One uh, way is the patient being extremely agitated uh, usually, um, the restrained seclusion rooms are in one side of the hospital, mm-hmm. and a patient that is that agitated, it's hard to transport them to this place mm-hmm. without, you know, uh, causing significant injury. If you were to just walk them there, if they're so mm-hmm. agitated, so common practice is to tra- transfer them on a on a hardboard, okay, which is called as a striker, okay, in in the state hospital. Uh, that's the name of the company, I believe, that mm-hmm. makes it. I think so. Um, so they they use that uh, that hardboard to transfer this patient there. By the time they transfer them, I would imagine uh, the patient is extremely agitated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because you put them in restraints, you transported them to a seclusion room. I if they're so agitated, it might not be a best practice to let them out of that right away. Okay. So the, the, it's a common practice that they get transferred to a bed where these restraints are continued. Okay. But in those scenarios where they are in restraints only because they were transported in restraints, I would imagine the restraints need to come off as soon as possible whenever they're less agitated. Mm -hmm. The other scenario is a patient who is so agitated that they're hitting themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes patients do significant bodily harm to themselves Mm -hmm. by tearing at their skin, pulling out their teeth, uh, hitting themselves in the head, in which case you're trying to prevent them from harming themselves, mm-hmm. in which case um, re- restraints are more appropriate than seclusion. Mm-hmm. It would be the worst thing for a uh, patient who is injuring themselves to put them in a seclusion. Right. You're just giving a free space for them to hurt themselves more. Right. Right. In that, those scenarios, restraints would be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll obviously continue to assess a patient for the appropriateness of restraints and someone is in restraint you as a physician needs to check their breathing appropriately 
they're not having any medical they did not have any injuries they don't have any medical problems like someone with uh let's say copd okay mm-hmm. or congestive heart failure mm-hmm. uh if you're keeping the restrained bed completely supine position you can imagine their their reserves are low and they right. have a hard time breathing so you want to assess that and make sure that they are that, that it is still safe to use this highest level of restrictive method that you mm-hmm. can use and i think kind of what we talked about is using using the least restrictive method possible for the least amount of time that you need it for and then also making sure that thinking through what you're doing and is this actually helping the situation that you're trying to address exactly yes yeah um so one more question that i was going to ask you about is um, in addition to everything else that we've covered so far, some common mistakes or pitfalls that you've seen, either that you've heard about in reports or things that you've seen in your own practice that that physicians make in terms of dealing with acutely psychotic patients. Sure. Um, one one particular uh, scenario that that comes to mind is of a of a patient who is brought to the the ED. Um, in a in, in some kind of a police van where this individual is in restraints and the police officer comes into the ED uh, requesting the physician to uh, prescribe a medication mm-hmm. uh, for this patient who is agitated uh, the, the physician hasn't seen the patient okay besides the police officer's report that this person is agitated mm-hmm. the physician uh, dispenses uh, a haloperidol which is mixed in a you know pudding and um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, if it was just being mixed in a pudding or given as an injection, but uh, the physician does authorize this medication. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, the patient who gets this medication has a, has a, a serious allergic reaction to this medicine. Okay. Uh, and until this point, the physician hasn't seen the patient, and the patient is not even in the ED. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you can uh, appreciate the ethical implications of uh, providing medications without a doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, like clinical rationale of prescribing something when an individual is not under observation, especially when you're giving medications for the first time, mm-hmm. just to look for allergic reactions. Um, so that's that's the uh, scenario that stands out in my, uh, in my experience. Right. And that's probably good information to think about kind of if you're a medical student or a resident in general, if you're getting a second-hand or third-hand report of something, going to see the patient, making sure that the situation that you're giving the medication is the appropriate situation to give the medication, and especially relevant in this circumstance. Exactly, like, like uh, at least uh, knowing who the patient is, and it's it's ethically just to actually be able to have that connection with the patient and tell the patient, no matter uh, if the patient disagrees with you or not, Mm-hmm. Telling them that you're prescribing medication, I think right. it's it's within your role as a physician uh, before you dispense any medications. Right. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about um, involuntary medications and kind of going through the whole the consent process. Exactly. And everything. Yes. And as kind of a last wrap up for everyone listening to this, probably everybody is going to be treating a patient who has acute psychosis or psychosis in some capacity. What are the things that you'd like people to keep in mind as they go forward in their practice? Sure. Um, uh, as I said in the beginning, um, safety first, and mm-hmm. do not let your guard down um, when you're seeing patients for the first time in an acute psychotic state, uh, and be vigilant of what's to come. 
Mm-hmm. Um, do not be in a rush to get at a diagnosis before you form some meaningful uh, relationship with the patient. Of course, within the time constraints you have mm-hmm. uh, working in an ED, um, and and do not hesitate to consult a co- colleague. Meaning, you know, after giving out the initial uh, treatment or measures that you thought about for a patient, if it's unsuccess- unsuccessful, it's better to uh, ask a colleague mm-hmm. as to uh, what other things may be happening. Okay, uh, that's that's a good measure. Um, always document your rationale. Okay. No matter okay. what you do, if you decide to discharge a patient, if you decide to admit a patient, if you decide to prescribe a medication, always put down on the paper your thinking. Okay. Of right. why you're doing it. Right. Which will, which is always good uh, practice and also medical legally. Uh, when someone sees back, uh, correction. When someone looks back at your note, uh, you have a way of explaining yourself why right, you did right. certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's really helpful. Um, definitely a topic that's relevant for everybody and a topic that can be difficult to manage for wherever you are, if you're in the emergency department, if you're in a psychiatric hospital, if you're in an inpatient unit, uh, information that is going to be extremely valuable for everybody going forward in their training. Sure. I, I appreciate you uh, inviting me to this and I Uh, I hope uh, this information is helpful to the listeners. Thank you so much, Dr. Panamecha.